Well, for the past few weeks, we've been following the career of King Saul, the first king of Israel. And it's really been a mixed bag, you know, of the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, there's times when Saul does a fantastic job as king. You know, as you read through 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel's often, or Saul, I should say, is often presented as the hero of Israel, rescuing Israel from all of its uh, enemies. Uh, For example, at the end of the chapter that we looked at last week, we find a bit of a a summary of Saul's military success. If you look in 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, verse 47, it reads like this. Now, when Saul had secured his grasp on Israel's throne, he fought against his enemies in every direction, against Moab, Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he was victorious. He performed great deeds and conquered the Amalekites, saving Israel from all those who had plundered them. And then we get a a little brief summary of Saul's family tree, which I won't read right now, but then verse 52 continues. The Israelites fought constantly with the Philistines throughout Saul's lifetime. So whenever Saul observed a young man who was brave and strong, he drafted him into his army. So as you can kind of see, uh, from a military point of view, Saul was a very successful king. It says that he saved Israel from all who plundered them. And wherever he turned, he was victorious. Uh, In the eyes of the, the people of Israel, Saul was exactly the kind of king that they wanted. However, in the eyes of God, King Saul had not done quite so well. Um, Two weeks ago, we saw how Saul disobeyed the command of the Lord by offering up this burnt offering to God instead of waiting for the prophet Samuel, who was the only one that God had authorized to make such an offering. Uh, And Saul overstepped the the bounds of his God-given authority as king, and he took on the role of priest for himself. And as we're going to see today, this wasn't just an isolated incident of sin. Uh, This wasn't just, you know, a a one-time foolish choice in a moment of weakness. This was evidence of a heart that would increasingly become prideful and arrogant. Uh, Although although Saul had very humble beginnings, uh, it seems that his position of power and his military success caused him to grow in his esteem of himself and decrease his esteem of God and his commands. And so today, as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to see this pattern continue with with Saul concluding that his decisions are just a little bit wiser than God's ways and God's decisions. Uh, But I should warn you, as we go through this story today and and see just how how foolish and arrogant Saul has become, we need to be careful because we might just see ourselves do the exact same thing. But before we get into it this morning, let's pause here and pray and ask God to, to speak to us through his word. Dear God, we thank you. As we just saw in that little video that uh, you have spoken to us through uh, all these prophets through the years gone by, and you still speak to us today. Your your word says that uh, the scriptures are, are alive uh, and they're active. They're sharper than a two-edged sword. So God, I, speak, I pray that you would speak to us through your word that is alive today. Uh, tell us the, the things that we need to know in our lives. Uh, either things that increase our faith in you or, or rebuke us for the ways that we've acted or the attitudes that we have, but help us become more like you uh, through what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 15 begins like this. One day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I've decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. 
Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. And I'll pause here just for a minute to add a, a quick note of explanation to this, the seemingly pretty harsh command from God to completely annihilate the Amalekite nation. This isn't an arbitrary command that where, where God just one day decides to, to wipe out a, a people group. The Bible makes this very clear. This is an act of divine judgment, much like how God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah or, or how he wipes out, you know, the entire uh, world population except for Noah and his family in the flood. Uh, the nation of Amalek is not just a, an innocent bystander here, but had in fact ruthlessly attacked the Israelites as they were on their way out of Egypt as newly freed slaves. And this is all recorded for us in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, if you remember from uh, Sunday school as a kid, this is the battle where as long as Moses held up his staff, the Israelites would have the advantage in the battle. But if he put his hands down, then the Amalekites would have the advantage. And so Aaron and Hur hold up Moses' hands all day long so that the Israelites can eventually win the battle, which they do. But at the end of that battle, we see this verse in Exodus 17, verse 14. It says, after the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Because of their unprovoked attack on the children of Israel, God declared that he would execute judgment against the Amalekites and basically erase them from the face of the earth. But that didn't mean that he would do it right away. Uh, a little later on, as Joshua is getting ready to take command and lead the people into the promised land, uh, we get a little bit more insight. Uh, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 25, 17, he says, Never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land he is giving you as his special possession, you must destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Never forget this. This verse here makes it pretty clear that God's judgment uh, on the Amalekites would be carried out uh, later after God had given the children of Israel rest from their enemies as they conquered the promised land. And, and this is precisely why God has chosen this moment now uh, with Israel's first king, King Saul, uh, leading the united armies of Israel to finally carry out judgment on the Amalekites. And so that's why we read in verse two, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the Amalekite nation men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. And so that is what Saul set out to do. We read in verse four. So Saul mobilized his army at Talim. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent this warning to the Kenites. Move away from where the Amalekites live or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. So from these verses here, it seems like Saul has done exactly what God has commanded. He takes his army and he prepares to attack the Amalekites, uh, being careful to warn the Kenites, who had been uh, kind to Israel when they came out of Egypt, uh, he tells them to get out of the area so they won't get caught up in the battle. And so then, with the Kenites safely out of the way, Saul then attacks the Amalekites and he slaughters them just as God commanded. 
Well, almost as God commanded. If you take a look at the next couple verses, verse 8 and 9. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember God saying anything about sparing the king's life or, or keeping the best of the cattle and the, the sheep and the lambs and all that. It, it seems to me that God was abundantly clear to Saul that he was to, to, to completely destroy everyone and everything, not just what was worthless or of poor quality, but everything. So what in the world was Saul doing? Well, I can tell you what he wasn't doing. He wasn't obeying the command of the Lord. Look what God says to Samuel in the very next verse. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. So as Saul blatantly disobeys the Lord once again, God comes to Samuel and he says, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. And this is a, an interesting verse. You know, is God expressing regret for something that he has done? Is God saying that he, he made a mistake in choosing Saul to be king? How can that be? I mean, God doesn't make mistakes, does he? So how is it that God says, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king? Well, it might be helpful to look at another passage where God uses this exact same kind of language. If you flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, which of course is the account of Noah and the flood, uh, we see the, the same kind of language. Look at verse 5, Genesis 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And here again, we see that God appears to express regret over creating people because everything they thought and they imagined was consistently and totally evil. It's the same language. I think it's the same word that God uses in Samuel when he says that he was sorry that he made Saul king. But I want you to notice that little verse or the little sentence at the end of the verse, it says, it broke his heart. The sorrow that God is expressing here isn't so much regret about his decision to create man, um, but rather it's about the, the it's expressing the, the hurt and the grief that God feels because of the sinful, rebellious actions of man. Remember, God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. He knew how sinful man would be even before he created him. He knew how disobedient Saul would be before he ever made him king. So God is not surprised by these outcomes. In fact, God had already worked all these things together for good in his greater plan for mankind. But I don't think that negates the, the grief that God feels when we sin. Uh, Genesis 6, 6 puts it, our sin breaks the heart of God. Uh, one commentator that I read put it this way. He says, as all this unfolded, God's heart was not emotionless. He didn't sit in heaven with a clipboard, checking off boxes, coldly saying, all according to plan. No, our sin deeply grieves the heart of God. And I think this is what God is expressing to Samuel. Saul's disobedience has so grieved God's heart that God uses the expression, I'm sorry that I ever made him king. 
That's not a, a literal statement of regret, I don't believe, but rather an expression of great sorrow and grief. And, and Samuel shares in the Lord's grief. It says in verse 11, Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Both God and Samuel were deeply grieved by the actions of King Saul, but Saul seems to be completely oblivious to the whole thing. Take a look at the next verses. It says, early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself, and then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. You know, it certainly doesn't seem like Saul's feeling very guilty here. He's actually quite proud of himself, right? In fact, he's already set up a monument in the town of Carmel to, to honor and memorialize himself. And then when Samuel shows up, Saul greets him cheerfully with a blessing and says, I have carried out the Lord's command. And you can imagine how well this sits with Samuel, who knows exactly what Saul has done and has just spent the entire night crying out to the Lord because of Saul's disobedience. Uh, and you can tell in the next verse that Saul is, is, is livid, really. It says, then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear, Samuel demanded. It is true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul asked. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they're all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. It seems like Saul just doesn't get it. Somehow he's convinced himself that his disobedience was actually obedience because he, he did some of what God told him to do. But partial obedience is still disobedience. We can't pick and choose what parts of God's commands we're going to obey, even if we think we have a good reason for disobeying. Saul thought that his excuse of, of offering the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle as a sacrifice to God would justify his disobedience. You know, surely God would understand and even appreciate the gesture, Saul thought. But look at how Samuel responds in verse 22. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Whatever excuses or justifications Saul may have had for his disobedience, uh, he was quickly cut off by this sharp rebuke from Samuel. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Or in other words, religious activity is no substitute for obedience. And we had talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago, that, that God is not interested in our empty religious rituals, right? He's interested in the relationship 
that we have with him. He, he wants you to trust him and, and thus be obedient to what he tells you to do. See, God's not interested in our obedience just so that he can, you know, order us around like a bunch of little robots. Obedience isn't about God getting his own way. No, he wants our obedience because that shows that we trust him. Uh, that's why Samuel says that obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of fat, the fat of rams, because obedience shows that we trust God. I think that's also why Samuel says that rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. Our disobedience shows that we don't trust God. Um, our, our disobedience shows that we, we don't believe that God is good or, or that God is wise or that God knows what he's doing. You know, for Saul, he figured he knew better than God, right? He had a better plan, a better way of doing things. Surely it would be better to spare Agag and on all those animals so they can make a great sacrifice to God later. You know, certainly God would see Saul's wisdom in this. You know, uh, I'm sure God would be grateful that Saul had improved God's foolish plan. And of course, that just sounds absolutely ridiculous to us. But that's exactly what happens every time that we choose to disobey God. You know, we think we know better, or we can take care of our situation better than God can, or, or, or that God has somehow missed some details, and, and if he only knew what we knew, well, things would be different. But I guess that kind of sounds ridiculous too, doesn't it? It all comes down to the question, do you trust God enough to obey him? Do you believe that God knows what he's doing, and that he loves you, and that he wants what's best for you? No, Saul didn't. Saul chose to reject God's way and do things his own way instead. And as a result, his relationship with God suffered greatly. Uh, there's a little bit of the story left, and I'll, I'll, I'll read through that this morning. I don't have time probably to comment on everything yet, but I, I want you to know how this story ends. And so I'll start at verse 24 and finishes, uh, finish to the end of the chapter. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now, please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind for he is not human that he should change his mind. Then Saul pleaded again, I know I have sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring King Agag to me. Agag arrived full of hope for he thought, surely the worst is over and I've been spared. But Samuel said, as your sword has killed the sons of many mothers, now your mother will be childless. And Samuel cut Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went home to Ramah, and Saul returned to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry that he ever made Saul king of Israel. Even though Saul was finally forced to admit his sin at the end, you know, we can see that he wasn't genuinely sorry for his actions. He was more concerned about being honored by the elders of Israel than he was about how he had grieved the Lord. And the chapter closes with both Samuel and the Lord mourning the foolish choice of Saul. 
So can I just encourage you this morning not to make the same foolish choice? Don't harden your heart and reject the Lord and his commands, but instead put your trust in him in every area of your life. I think Proverbs 3, 5 says it well. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you'll have healing for your body and strength for your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. And I, I need to remind you that our Heavenly Father delights in us. He delights in you. He loves you like crazy, and he deeply wants what's best for you, just like how a parent wants what's best for their child. So can I encourage you this morning to trust in your Heavenly Father. Trust him with, with all of your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Don't follow the path of Saul, you know, trying to improve God's plan or take matters into your own hands, but trust in the Lord. Believe that he is good, that he is wise, and that he does love you more than you could even imagine, because that's all true. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, we thank you again for this rebuke in the book of Samuel. As we see Saul being rebuked for his own foolishness, we can't help but be reminded of our own. How many times we choose to take matters into our own hands uh, where we don't believe that you really do have our best interest at heart or, or you don't understand our situation or whatever excuses we come up with. But God, I pray that as this uh, proverb tells us that we would trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We wouldn't lean on our own understanding. Our understanding is so limited, God. We don't see the whole picture, but you do. And you give us wise instructions, good instructions for our good and for your glory. May we have the, the faith in you, the trust in you to do what you've asked us to do, to obey and, and not to, to improvise or, or be partial in our obedience or whatever it is, but may we wholeheartedly believe and obey and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.